0: Welcome to Simplify. I'm Caitlin Schiller.
1: And I'm Ben schumann Solar. Hello, hello. Hi. Great to see you. You also. How's it going?
0: Pretty good. Pretty good. Ben, when was the last time we had an episode where you talked with a guest?
1: Yeah, it's almost like you won't let me. It's almost like I'm not allowed. (laughs) No, no, no. Season one. I talked to Laura Vanderkam in season one years ago.
0: Yeah. So today's episode feels super special because we are going to hear Ben's talk with Tina Payne Bryson. And you were super, super excited about doing this one. Why were you so excited to get in there into the interview machine and roll up
1: your sleeves? Why was I so excited? I'm a parent and her books, they've had a big impact on how I do that, how I do parenting. They always come up when I talk to other parents, I reference them Mm -hmm. and they come up with me and my sisters and my parents and my partner. And they're a big part of how I think about parenting. They're like foundational for me.
0: Yeah. Tell me about these books.
1: Okay, so, so there's two books, really. I mean, she's written a bunch, but there's two books that I wanna focus on. Yeah. Uh, one is called The Whole Brain Child, and the other one's called No Drama Discipline. And these are books uh, that Tina mm-hmm. wrote with Dan Siegel. And their work comes from neuroscience, but it's also extremely practical. And for a parent and people who deal with kids, it actually really helps these extremely difficult moments of parenting that Tina and I get into in the interview.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um- So what's one thing from these books or one thing from this interview that you got to talk about that's changed how you parent?
1: I think the thing that I go back to all the time and what I try to tell parents, and you see this sometimes, you know, when a kid is in a tantrum, when a kid is throwing a fit, in that moment, you often hear parents, and I've done this also, say, like, that's not okay. What are you doing? As if the response is, I am crying and taking off my clothes right now in the supermarket, Dad, obviously. (laughs) You know, they can't access that part of the brain. They're not thinking reasonably, rationally, logically. You know, they don't necessarily want to be scream crying. It doesn't feel good, but they can't help it, you know? Um, (laughs) Instead of that, you have to have access to the reasonable, rational part of the brain first. So once they can access that, then you can adjust the behavior. Then you can actually talk about what to do and how to get out of the supermarket in one piece.
0: Right. But it's so tempting to use logic on a being that cannot logic. Right. Okay. So let's get into this interview because I think that there have to be some parts about what you can do instead of trying to logic your child who is losing their brains in the supermarket.
1: Yeah. Let's do it. Let's play it.
0: Awesome. And we'll catch you later in the bookend where we'll debrief on this episode and make some further reading recommendations. So stay with us for that.
1: All right. Boom. Let's go. Hey, Tina.
2: Hi, nice to meet you.
1: Yeah, cool. So could you introduce yourself the way you like to be introduced?
2: Yeah. So I'm Tina Payne Bryson, and I am a mom to three boys. And I'm an author who's written some books with my friend and colleague, Dan Siegel. Most known is The Whole Brain Child or No Drama Discipline, but we've also written The Yes Brain and The Power of Showing Up. And then I'm the author of a book called The Bottom Line for Baby, Um, It's an alphabetical book for new parents on 65 topics that parents get the most competing information about. And you can just flip to whatever that topic is, and it lays out, here are the main ways people think about this topic— here's what the science says, and here's the bottom line, and um, really encouraging families to trust their babies and trust themselves and do what works well for their family. I'm also the founder and executive director of an interdisciplinary clinical practice in Los Angeles, California called the Center for Connection. Those are my many hats, um, (laughs) but most of the time I'm You know, I'm also thinking, like, what am I going to make for dinner tonight? Because, you know, I've got hungry teenagers that eat every two to three hours. Um, And so I'm constantly thinking about what food is coming next um, in my home. So I have just a very ordinary mom life as well as these uh, sort of professional things that I feel really committed to and I'm really proud of as well.
1: Cool. So, yeah, I wanted to focus on whole brain child and no drama discipline. Great. And... Maybe to start out, uh, Whole Brain Child is a book about brain development in children. Yep. And I wanted to ask you if you could walk me through a basic framework of brain development in children, because I always kind of get tied up in knots.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think the reason you get tied up in knots and you're not the only one, Ben, is that You know, there are many, many ways to talk about or divide up the brain or to think about it. It's really one of the most um, complex things in the known universe, but it's part of a system. It's part of the whole nervous system. And so really, I think the most helpful way is to think about how we have the higher structures of the brain and the lower structures of the brain, which Dan and I and the Whole Brain Child call the upstairs brain and the downstairs brain. So One of the ways is to think about top-down and Mm bottom-up. So top-down would be when we're using our prefrontal cortex, which is obviously where we um, pause before action, we're problem-solving, we do decision-making. It's the part of the brain that allows us to have empathy and to be thoughtful. Bottom-up processing is much more our sensory system that is really much more about movement and our instincts and emotion that kind of floods into our systems. And so the reason I think this is so helpful is because, let's say, for example, your child is having a meltdown. So mm-hmm. what's happening is they're having a bottom up activation and they're probably not accessing that prefrontal cortex. In the whole brain child we call that flipping your lid. You're losing access to that that upstairs brain. And what happens then is we as parents often or adults use top down ways to deal with that situation and it's a total
1: mismatch. I just want to make sure that it's like super extra clear and I've read the book so I I have an advantage. But when you say like so they're having a tantrum Like, what does bottom-up look like? It's like taking your clothes off in the supermarket and screaming. And then when you say top-down, is that like then saying, uh, excuse me, we do not take our clothes off in the supermarket.
2: Right. Yeah, so, so, you know, what's happening when, and this is not the case just for kids. This can be for adults as well. But when we really become flooded with emotion... We really do lose the capacity to pause before action. We're really sort of held captive to our reactivity in the moment. So the brain is either in a receptive, you know, open, ready to problem-solve and learn state, or it's in this reactive state where it can't do any of those things. So I'll give this very specific example. So let's say my my four-year-old who's in the bathtub, and and I say it's time to get out of the bathtub and he says, I'm not getting out of the bathtub. You can't make me get out of the bathtub. And he's splashing me and yelling me, right? Mm-hmm. So if I do top-down processing with him, I would basically be trying to reason. I'd be trying to use logic. Um, I'd be acting as if he had a choice. But really, he doesn't have access to the part of his brain that does any of those things. Or maybe I even throw out a threat. You know, if you continue with this behavior, <laughs> I'm not reading you bedtime stories tonight. Right? Way oh, too God. much talk. Are you, are you feeling some identification like with grimacing. this example? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Like
1: brutal. I'm, well, I'm you bro- hear how like, easy oh, the God. example
2: comes off my tongue, yeah, too. Yeah. So I've done it all as well. Um, so that's really top down. We're using all these words and we're talking to our child as if they are rational, fully developed humans in that moment. Right. So bottom up instead is going to say, okay, this kid is having actually what a tantrum actually is, is a stress response. And this is a really interesting little scientific note, um, is that the part of the brain that lights up in response to physical pain also lights up when we are in emotional pain. So if your Hmm. child were to scrape their knee or bump their head and were crying and and yelling and being really upset, as parents, it's much easier to access connection, empathy, and soothing in those moments when it's physical pain. But when it's emotional pain, we often go to these places that are, I think, often fear-based where we go, you know what, I'm not tolerating this behavior and there's no way I'm letting my kid talk to me like this. And it's much harder to access soothing connection and comfort in those moments. But what's yeah. happening in our, our child's brain is you know, very similar. Now, I used to spend so much time and attentional energy, cognitive energy, emotional energy, on trying to figure out what do I do in this moment? How do I handle this moment? How do I make it stop? And eventually, after a lot of science and a lot of practice, this is my third kid, right? (laughs) So I eventually come to learn that it's not my job to stop my child from feeling those emotions. It's not my job to try to shut it down as fast as possible, even though that's what I want to do. What my kid really needs in that moment is for me to be present And to walk with him through and allow him to feel that feeling. Because the way resilience is built is by practicing dealing with difficult emotions and difficult situations with enough support. This is when he really needs me to be the calm in the storm. I can't be the calm in the storm if I become the storm, right? I'm just going to escalate things and make it be a lose-lose if I handle it another way. He's not building any skills for the next time he feels what he's feeling, which is disappointment and the injustice that is very angering, right? So, in that moment, what I do when he's tantruming, when he's falling apart, is to allow him to feel his feelings without me communicating otherwise. So, the way that looks, by the way, is not at all to be permissive, though. I'm still going to hold a boundary. So, I'm going to say, it's time to get out. And he says, I'm not getting out. And he splashes me and he's totally, you know, lost it. So, I say to him, it feels so terrible to feel so disappointed that you have to go to bed. And when I say that, I've hit the nail on the head and he yells louder, right? So don't <laughs> think that means it's not working, right? And I yeah. say, you can get out by yourself or I will help you out. And so he again screams at me, I'm not getting out. So as I as I lift his body out, I'm still holding the boundary. I say to him, you're so mad that bath time is over, Is that right? You're so angry and it's okay to be angry. I'm right here with you while you feel angry. So, and then I wrap the towel around him. I pull him close to me and I say, if you need to cry for a little while, I'm right here with you while you cry. Now, what happens there is I'm soothing his sensory system with pulling him close to me, wrapping the towel around him think about times when we're upset as adults and people have experienced this a lot during the pandemic we want comfort foods we want fuzzy comfy clothes a warm beverage like things that are physically comforting can really impact emotional comfort as well so so we do a lot of bottom up soothing with our babies we you know mm-hmm. we rock them we pat them we sing to them and so we can think about those things you know with our with our older kids as well
1: can we stay on the on the tantrum topic you know parents around the world Going through this scenario now, kids going to school, they haven't gone to school for a while. The routine is gone. Yeah. So I'm curious about how that looks with an older child. Like I've experienced this as my child gets older, it's become harder for me to find the strategies to, to, I guess in your framework, like come bottom up, but not too far up or something. Do you know what I mean? So how do you talk to like a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old or something who's having a tantrum and doesn't want to go to school? Yeah. Yeah. What does that look like?
2: Well, I think, you know, whatever age your children are, our job in those moments when they're having a tantrum is to co-regulate, right? Get them back into this more integrated state in their brains where they're not just top down or just bottom up, but it's coming together. So here's what I would say about, you know, 7 and 10-year-olds who are having tantrums. and, And you're right. Our kids are having more reactivity right now because of what they've gone through this year. Right. Now. There are circumstances that lead our brains into these reactive tantrum states, and there are things we can do to prevent that from happening. So I want to introduce a fancy term called neuroception, and neuroception is a word that came from Stephen Porges. Neuroception is really our nervous system's perception of whether something is safe or threatening or dangerous. And when our neuroception for danger or threat gets activated, we cannot use a top-down process, right? So that's what often leads us to these really reactive behaviors, which might look like a full-blown tantrum meltdown, but it might also lead to a child who's not tantruming or melting down, but they're really anxious, for example. Right. You know, think about like when you had summer break or you had a break from school and it was time to go back. And the the thinking and the feelings around, you know, well, who am I going to sit with at lunch and is my teacher going to be nice? We all have those anxieties of anticipation of things that are unknown. But now that kids have have been either away from school for a long time, or it's not been consistent, those fears and those anticipatory worries are really, really elevated. So, and then you add in all the fears and overwhelm of all the adults around children, our neuroception for threat and danger is really activated right now. Mm -hmm. What we can do as parents then is try to improve our child's neuroception for safety.
1: Yeah, so how do we do that?
2: I mean, we could spend four hours on this, but <laughs> just briefly, I'll give a few. You know, when the brain feels like the world is unpredictable or things are unpredictable, that automatically makes us feel like there's a threat or danger. The brain is an anticipation machine, and it loves to know what's going to happen. And when we don't know what's going to happen, it can leave us feeling like things are dangerous. So... We want to create rhythms and predictability in our children's lives as best we can. Um, That can be done even through food. Like, you know, Tuesday nights we have tacos typically and Friday nights we have pizza and Saturday mornings we have breakfast burritos. Um, I know very all-American foods here, but, um, you know, having some rhythms around that. And if your kids are old enough, have them um, help you make a playlist of songs that can be playing in mornings that they have school, whether they're doing school virtually or in person. That's the school playlist. Um, But creating... Really nice rituals and rhythms around bedtime and around the rhythms of the week can be really helpful. Yeah. Another thing we can do that I think is super important and it requires such a tiny shift is to make sure that our messaging to our kids is safety based instead of threat based. So if we say you can't see Grandma because it's dangerous, you know, we don't want her to get sick, um, or you can't go to school because everyone's spreading germs or you, you know wash your hands so that we don't get sick those are danger-based messaging it's around what bad things can happen instead we say hey we're taking a break on seeing grandma right now or we're taking a break on school so that we can keep everyone safe hey everybody make sure you wash your hands so we can stay healthy so it's it's the same messaging you're setting the same safety boundaries but our messaging is focused around safety versus threat and the reason this is so important is that the brain is an association machine now, in childhood, when we have repeated messaging around danger, danger, threat, threat, bad things can happen, that really gets wired in the brain that primes us to expect other things to be like that versus more safety-based. Now, the other thing that's important developmentally is that you might remember when your child was first learning language, and you might see a dog, and you would point to the dog and say to your child, dog, and your child's brain goes, okay, I see the general shape of that head, tail, legs, furry dog. And then your child might see a goat and say dog. And the reason for that is because we start out very general. There's generalizations that then become more specific. So with children, when we say, you know, this is dangerous, they generalize that and it can actually get generalized to everything. So instead, we want them to generalize safety. So we want to say, you know, we're doing this so that when it's time to go back or when it's time to see grandma or go back to school, our kid has not had tons and tons of reps around danger and threat. Instead, we want them to have repeated reps around, my parents are keeping me safe. So therefore, if they say it's okay to go back to school or see a friend or whatever, it must be safe. So I think that's another way we can really, you know, amp up this neuroception for safety.
1: Right. Right.
0: It's Caitlin with just a quick break from Ben's talk with Tina. If you didn't know it, Simplify is brought to you by Blinkist, which is where Ben and I work. Blinkist is an app that gives you a sneak peek into a whole world of great nonfiction books like Tina's by identifying the key ideas and transforming them into powerful little capsules of text or audio. And now there are shortcasts too. Shortcasts are 10 to 15 minute edits of the most important ideas from longer podcast episodes. What's really cool is that we make them alongside the original hosts like Malcolm Gladwell of Revisionist History, Dr. Lori Santos of the Happiness Lab, and lots more. Shortcasts are so great because you can truly learn fast fresh stuff in just minutes and get up to speed on those great shows that everybody's listening to fast but as with most things it's better if you just try it out for yourself so go to blinkist.com simplify click try blinkist in the top right hand corner and you can try it for free for 14 days by entering the code tantrum that's blinkist.com simplify use the code tantrum and you are good to go hope you love it and that's it now back to ben's talk with tina
1: I mean, this does go into some of the reactive, receptive stuff of No Drama Discipline already, which is maybe a good segue because that book, um, I mean, the title says it all, No Drama Discipline. And the thing that I'm curious about with No Drama Discipline is what muscle parents should try and develop. Is that like a a listening thing, a communicating thing, a self-awareness thing?
2: I think my answer is an easy one, and that is the idea of regulation. And what I mean by regulation is the ability to regulate or balance your emotional states and even your physical, you know, what you do with your body. Um, We can almost think about it as a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. When our kids are regulated, they are able to listen and learn and be creative and empathetic and have insight. Like all the skills we want for them require that they have the capacity to regulate. The way that Dan and I talk about this in No Drama Discipline is that the discipline moments, yes, we think of them as moments to just get through and survive, and I very much identify with that. You know, your kid's screaming, they're throwing a fit, they're making things really difficult in that (laughs) moment. You just want them to stop. You know, you just want them to put their shoes on without having to do a puppet show about it. (laughs) But discipline is always an opportunity to build skills and to help our children thrive. So, here's the basic idea. You know, that's a very different way of thinking about discipline. So, in fact, when we talk about discipline, people often assume we're talking about punishment and consequences, mm-hmm. right? Um, but Dan and I wanted to reclaim the original meaning of that word, which is to teach and to build skills. Because our children's behavior is communication. They're screaming loud and clear with their behavior, sometimes literally, what skills they don't yet have. And you can't do it every moment. You don't have to have a reflective dialogue every moment. That's exhausting. But what I'm saying is that what we really want out of discipline is for our children to become self-disciplined people. Yeah. And if that goal is there, then I'm going to actually be disciplining less and less over time. Because as my child becomes self-disciplined, I don't have to be the disciplinarian as much. So we really want to ask ourselves, the point of what I'm about to do as a disciplinarian is to teach. What is the lesson I want my child to learn? Is my child ready to learn? And if they're having a tantrum, the answer is no. So in the name of discipline, we might need to comfort and soothe and regulate with them to move them into a receptive state where we then can address the behavior. So it's not indulgent. It's not spoiling kids. It's not reinforcing bad behavior. What we're doing in those moments is giving their brain practice for learning how to self-regulate. So let me give a specific example. Um, So my eighth grader comes to me on Sunday night about 6 p.m. and says, "Um, hey, mom, can you take me to the craft store? Now, y'all, he's not a crafter. He didn't just want to do something creative. (laughs) He had a project due the next morning. He had to make a 3D model of a cell and he needed materials, right? And he waited till the last minute. And I was really mad at him. And I was like, you're so disrespectful of my time, and I can't believe you waited till the last minute. So I did all this lecturing in the moment. Um, I took him to the craft store, but I was like, I'm not helping you. This is your project. And he had a natural consequence. A natural consequence is where as parents, we don't do anything to our child. We're not Throwing a consequence at them, it's what just happens without us interfering at all, and that was that he got a D. And then a couple of days later, I went, "Oh yeah, remember Tina? Remember your book that you just wrote?" Um, he his behavior just communicated to me the skills he needs to build. He basically <laughs> said to me with his behavior, hey, mom, you know, all those executive function skills of planning ahead and thinking about how much time I might need and what materials I might need and considering your schedule. I'm a 14-year-old boy. I don't have those down yet. And mom, you know, that that skill about, you know, um, delayed gratification, I'm not great at that either yet because my friends invited me to play football with them all weekend. And that was way more fun because peers matter to me more than anything right now developmentally, right? So then, instead of just punishing him or saying, you know, now you can't play football with your friends next weekend, which does nothing to build skills, I go, okay, now what I need to do is instead of doing something to him, what I want to do is something for him to build those skills. So I say, okay, we're going to practice planning. Mm -hmm. So what that meant is the next Friday before the weekend started. I said, get out your planner. What do you have coming up that's due? When is it due? How long do you think that will take you? And I had these planning sessions with him to give him practice building those skills. And that's what discipline is. Teaching. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Oh, wow. What I'm taking from that, besides that I had like three stomach churning moments of identification with <laughs> your examples of what not to do. Um, I, <laughs> I'm thinking about this regulation because it's always this thing about parenting books and, and I guess self-help sometimes when you're like, yeah, cool. In theory, that sounds great. But when it happens at the worst time, when you're stressed and you just you're not ready to teach, yeah. as you would say, you know, what do you want me to do, world? Like this kid's got to get out of the house. I got a call with my boss in five minutes. Like at that moment, right. I'm remembering I forgot to get cash right, for the right. cleaners. It's like I go into such a dark hole of of just I suck at everything, <laughs> um, and I have like a human being who's falling apart in front of me. Right, you right. know, who needs me? And right. I, I mean, I wish like there was a cheat code. I wish you could give us a cheat code.
2: Right, right, right.
1: What would it look like? It would just be it would just be regulation, I guess.
2: Regulation. And here's I'll just say you know quickly. We should have moments as parents that we look back on with our stomach churning, because what that means is that we are reflecting and thinking about our parenting. We're being intentional and we're learning and growing. If you never regretted one thing about your parenting, it would mean you're still stuck in that same place without learning and growing. So
0: um,
2: around the regulation piece, I think, you know, in those moments when your kid's falling apart and you're thinking of a million things and you're feeling really overwhelmed— We need to regulate ourselves in those moments first, because when we're yelling at our kids and we're dysregulated, our children mirror those states. And it can go the other way, too. You know, we have mirror neurons where we are responding to one another. When our kids are in tantrum states, it's really easy for that to be contagious and for us to join them there. So really regulating ourselves first. And a couple of really quick kind of hacks that are, are really helpful is put a hand on your chest and a hand on your belly just with a little bit of pressure. And take a big deep breath with your exhale longer than your inhale. So, when you have an exhale longer than your inhale, it actually down regulates your nervous system. It turns down that bottom up activation. And then, if we can have like this idea of like, I am the safe harbor in your storm, like, all will be well, we will figure this out together, you're not alone in this. Now that doesn't mean me doing everything for them and fixing the world so that they have no adversity, but Mm -hmm. when we communicate to our kids, like, you can turn to me for help, I will always have you. um, That's how regulation gets built and how they build skills as well. And, And we want to keep practicing skills with our kids. So when our kid's falling apart, we can say, okay, let's practice taking a deep breath together, or let's sit and just pause for a minute. You know, the way to think about regulation for me is so helpful to think about it in contrast to compliance. So if you have a kid who refuses to stay in their bed at night, they get scared or they wake up and they want to be with you, you know, you can get compliance. You can say you have to stay in your room and you can lock their door. Or you can say, if you stay in your room, you're going to get this big prize and that motivates your kid to stay in their room. Um, but they may stay awake half the night feeling afraid in their room. So they're compliant with the behavior you want, but they're totally dysregulated. Oh God, which actually moment. undermines yeah. yeah, which totally <laughs> <Sorry>. undermines, <laughs> it undermines our goals because that doesn't teach your child how to handle those issues at right. all over time, right? It teaches them to try to disconnect from their feelings, right? right. If I say, stop it, if you're going to cry like that, I'm leaving. You know what I'm really communicating is, I'm not interested in being in relationship with you when you're falling apart. Mm. If we criticize them, their brain's like, okay, note to self, by way of making a neural association, it doesn't feel good when I share my feelings with my parent. They can't handle my big feelings. So my parent is not going to hear it from me. And so over time, we stop being in relationship with them in the same way. They stop sharing it with us. And really, we want to give our kids the opposite of that message. Yeah. Instead, if at the end of that interaction, I've comforted my child, I've co-regulated with him when he's having a hard time, um, I can walk out of that room going, you know what? Something amazing just happened. First of all, connection, soothing, and empathy— did work, my child calmed down much quicker than he would have if I had ended up yelling and stomping out of the room, et cetera. So that was a survive goal. But something else happened and that is that my kid had an experience of sitting in the difficulty and he made it through, right? So his brain's like, I can handle difficult things like that. So it really is resilience building.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is one important thing in your work that's actually much simpler than people think?
2: Ooh, what a good question. I think the simple thing is that when anyone, but I'll just say our kids, it could be your spouse, it could be your sister, it could be your best friend, uh, your colleague, but I'll say stick with our children. At our children's worst, that is when they need us the most, and we tend to overthink it and, like I said, bring so much emotional, cognitive, and attentional energy, and really all we have to do is show up in that moment with our presence and walk with our child through that moment. We you know really the the simplest thing is what your child needs most from you is you flawed you imperfect you Um, looking back with regret you, um, that's, you know, the single best predictor for how well our kids turn out is that they have secure attachment with us. And the way that we build secure attachment is the four S's, by helping them feel safe, by helping them feel seen and understood, by soothing them when they're having a hard time, and then repeatedly, not perfectly, showing up for them so that their brain's wired to know if I have a need, they're going to see it and show up for me. That is it. That is the most important thing of all of parenting, because... There are so many moments as a parent, and particularly as our kids move into adolescence, or when you have multiple kids falling apart at once, I often felt like, I don't know what to do here. I don't know what to say here. I don't know how to get out of this. And really, these four S's have become my North Star that whatever I do in the moment, if I can help the other person feel safe and seen and soothed, and to feel secure that I'm going to show up the next time it's hard to, that not only does it work well in the moment in terms of regulation, but it also builds the brain in the most optimal way. And so to me, that makes it really simple. I show up in the moment with my presence and, and provide those four S's and that is always the answer.
1: Yeah, nice. And the last thing I wanted to ask was, was about books. What uh, what have you been reading? What what would you recommend?
2: Oh, I love that question. Um, a couple of books that I have just finished. Um, one is a book by Jessica Leahy, who wrote The Gift of Failure. People know her for that book. But her book is called The Addiction Inoculation. And it is probably one of the most important parenting books that I've read in a long time. Oh, wow. Because it really talks developmentally at each age about what kinds of conversations can we have with our kids to prevent addiction issues? And I know it sounds like a really specific topic, but it really is more about how we communicate with our kids. And, you know, some of the th- bad things that happen to our kids are out of our control. But one thing we can control is the kinds of relationship we have with them. So I'm loving the addiction inoculation. Mm-hmm. The other book that I love is called Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. And it's by Julie Lithcott Hames, who wrote How to Raise an Adult, And this book is actually for young adults um, for how to be an adult. I'm actually finding I'm I'll be 50 this year and I'm actually learning all kinds of things about how to be an adult myself. Um, But it's a really, really um, beautiful book.
1: Cool. Thanks. New terms, new ideas, stuff to try. I feel like we covered a lot. Anyway, Tina, thank you so, 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 so much.
2: Oh, of course. Thank you for asking me. And what a wonderful podcast. I really feel honored to have been invited.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, we're honored. Then good luck out there and uh, have a great rest of the day. Welcome to the bookend, where we end with books.
0: Okay. I can really understand now why you find these books so helpful. Like once you understand the top down and bottom up processing, it completely makes sense that when someone is reactive and it just seems like whatever you're saying is not coming through, it's because it's literally not coming through.
1: Yeah. And when you think about that and how you communicate, you know, if someone's having a stress response, if it's your child, if it's a partner, if it's a colleague, what they actually need in that moment is just you, especially a child. Mm. They need dad you know they need yeah. mom they just need someone who is just there first and that's a really a very simple thing that i take away from this you know if i can just be there and be soothing right just be mm-hmm. soothing then i don't have to necessarily solve the entire problem of this moment in one fell swoop Just first, just be there and be soothing.
0: Right. Yeah, soothing. And that's one of the four S's that Tina provided you with. Um, What are the other S's?
1: (laughs) Test me. Soothe is one. (laughs) Seen, make them feel seen is one. And then safety is one. And that you'll show up for them so that they know, look, if it's going to be hard like this, You know, I'm still going to be there. You know, Next time you take off your clothes in the supermarket, I'm also going to be here. It's okay. I'm not going to run away. (laughs) You know, I'm going to leave you alone in the frozen fish section.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Which is, I think that's what we all want, right? I think to be assured that even when we're flipping our lids and things are getting wild, the people that we love will still love us and they'll still be there for us when the waters get calmer and, you know, help us collect our various bits of clothing up out of the produce aisle.
1: Yeah. So what did you, what did you take out of this? What did you think was cool?
0: Oh man, I thought so much of this This was cool. I think the thing that this episode offered me was this really valuable reframe of emotional meltdowns and how they're a stress response, which we experience in the exact same way as we would physical pain. When someone's bleeding or having a migraine, you'll try to physically soothe them, but if they're throwing a fit, oftentimes you'll sort of reason with them or make them
1: stop, which doesn't really help. In fact, it actually probably makes things worse. Right, imagine like stubbing your toe and someone being like, stop, stop saying ouch. You know, get a hold of yourself.
0: (laughs) Right, exactly. And when you think about the messages that we often send with this kind of behavior, if you don't stop, I won't talk to you, etc. I mean, no wonder so many people struggle with expressing or even feeling their feelings if their brains were repeatedly wired to detach from them. No wonder we're like an entire generation slash swath of humanity that really needs to go to therapy.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and that's why I recommend these books. I mean, really, they're short books. They're only a couple hundred pages. They're not like big, imposing mm-hmm. neuroscience books. There's really funny illustrations in them also. Shout out to Drawing. Nice. And... And maybe that's why we can do, if we transition to the books, we can keep the book list a little bit short because we already talked about two books. We talked about The Whole Brain Child. We talked about No Drama Discipline. In the talk, The Power of Showing Up is another book that came up, which is another book by Tina about how showing up and the four S's is -hmm. the most important and really helpful thing in parenting. So you can check out The Power of Showing Up also.
0: Yeah. And then we really loved also, or we're loving the two books that Tina recommended, The Addiction Inoculation and Your Turn, which we'd love to try getting those authors on Simplify. But I actually had, I wanted to bring one additional book. I had actually two. This light bulb moment when I heard you and Tina chatting about flipping your lid and how it's driven by bottom-up processing, which deals with sensory information rather than logic and reason, as we've been saying. It made me think of research by Elaine Aronson. Do you know this person, Ben? Tell me more. I shall. She's uh, <laughs> she's credited with being the first person to research and popularize the idea of the highly sensitive person, the HSP. The book is called The Highly Sensitive Person. Basically, there's scientific research that proves that there are people in this world who process emotions and sights and sounds and sensations, everything basically more deeply because of differences in their brains, like strong, stinky cheese smells are stronger and stinkier and cheesier to these people. Loud sounds are louder. Big feelings are even bigger and less manageable. And because of all these intense sensory inputs that they get, they get what she calls flooded, which is basically flipping your lid. And it leads to behaviors that can be super baffling for the people around them, like freezing, needing to retreat, crying, just acting totally overwhelmed. Anyway, All that's to say is that HSPs are a thing. Um, I consider myself one. If you were a child who couldn't stand to have a tag touch your body, then you also might be this way. (laughs) And also there's a book called The Highly Sensitive Person and, relevant, a recent release called The Highly Sensitive Child, which talks about raising kids who process the world in this deep, intense way Tune. And again, those are by Elaine Aronson.
1: Well, awesome. I'm a big fan of this episode. Me too. So, yeah, thanks for letting me do an interview.
0: Oh man, <laughs> let you. I would encourage you to do more of them. Uh, if you want Ben to do more interviews, please write in and let us know. It'll take a lot of work off my back, and I I love to shirk responsibilities and give them to Ben. So just let us know if you like this. I like this. Thumbs up. Okay, Simplify was produced by me. Oh Ben, I'm reading your words. It doesn't
1: matter. <laughs> Uh, okay. Simplify was produced by me, Benjamin Solar, Caitlin Schiller, and Marta Medvishek.
0: In case you didn't know, this episode was brought to you by Blinkist, which is where Ben and I work. Blinkist is an app, but you can also find us on the web or an Android store or an iOS store. We take the key insights from the world's best nonfiction books and distill them into little capsules that you can read or listen to in 15 to 20 minutes.
1: Yeah. And we do the same thing with podcasts now. We have a new format, which we call shortcasts. Caitlin, you came up with that word. Yeah, Brilliant. Thank you. Where we take the key insights and, and best bits from long podcasts and turn them into 10 to 15 minute listens. And the cool thing there is we actually work directly with the hosts. So like Malcolm Gladwell, Dr. Lori Santos, they're actually recording for us. Very cool.
0: Very, very cool. Um, yeah and if you want to hear all that just go to Blinkist.com slash simplify we made a little voucher code for you so go to Blinkist.com slash simplify tap on try Blinkist that's in the upper right hand corner
1: yeah what's the code tantrum the code is tantrum T-A-N-T-R-U-M don't throw a tantrum get 14 (laughs) days of Blinkist for free (laughs) tantrum Blinkist.com slash simplify try Blinkist read these books on Blinkist buy the books we love these books read them be good
0: yeah and that's that's pretty much it for today Um, if you like the episode share it with someone maybe somebody who's struggling to survive their children's tantrums um, and could use some inspiration and the second thing is leave us a comment on Apple podcasts tell us what you think
1: right you can email us at podcast at blinkist.com we're on Twitter I'm BSTO on Twitter and Caitlin is Caitlin Chiller at Caitlin Chiller so we're there otherwise see you next time yeah check it out check it out